Hello and welcome to episode 380 of the Fabulous Pelton Cast, sponsored by our friends at Pagliacci Pizza. I'm your co-host, Kevin Pelton. And I'm Tristan Carzino. And we are coming to you in different locations this week. I'm in Seattle, Washington, home of the AL West leading Mariners. Wow. Uh, the storm aren't even good enough to be in Seattle, Washington. And I'm coming to you from Renton, Washington, home of the Super Bowl 48 champion Seattle Seahawks who are playing a game this week. A game that counts in the standings and everything. And I will remember that it's happening. <laughs> I'm so confident. Uh, is the Washington Huskies already have done. We will talk about that all later in the podcast. Obviously, we will talk about that before the Mariners, who by virtue of remaining... There we one, go. One one hundredth of a point ahead of the Houston Astros retain the uh, the hammer spot in. You the said podcast. they would get it whether they were tied. I did. Or not, I so. did. But it's fun to say it that it's because of the, the one, one extra win and one that's, extra. That's loss. what they're doing it for. hundred <laughs> percent. Do it for the hammer. Many people have been saying, do it for the rundown for the Mariners. Do it or for the uh, Husky baseball team. Do it for the rundown for the for the Mariners. We have a return to the rundown this week. Really? So that's that's exciting to look forward to. Return well, to the rundown. A return okay. to the rundown. Just because their season started. But they had a notable enough performance. I wasn't going to talk about them until they did. Okay. Uh, but let's start off with this week's beer, which comes from our friends again at Bale Breaker. Uh, we are returning to our search for Seattle's best IPA because I could not find any fresh hop beers when I went at Beer Junction earlier this evening. And that is the Skyward. IPA. They're not that fresh. <laughs> a mentor told us when we first started out here in that here in the Pacific Northwest, the best beer is an IPA. So clear, you can read a book through it. Here it is, Skyward IPA, a crisp West Coast IPA named for the direction our hops stretch as they grow on our fourth generation hop farm. Brewed with a simple malt bill and showcases a big hop aromas of grapefruit, pineapple, and classic West Coast dankness. So we'll see. I think this is going to be our last search for Seattle's best IPA for some period of time because the hops should be fresh at this point. Okay. I don't know why the hops weren't fresh this week. What happened to the hops? I don't think it's the hot. We're still too early for real fresh hop season. I don't know. I was at Beer Star earlier in the week, and they said that they expected to get some cans later in the week, but they could have been referring to the two beers that we had last week on the pod, and then uh, they expected to get kegs this week of fresh hops. You walked into Beer Star and asked them about fresh hops? I didn't walk. Well, I I ordered a different non-fresh hop beer. I just asked them to be sure that they didn't have any fresh hops that I was missing on the menu. Are the hops, are they fresh? (laughs) I asked if they had any from the fresh hop region of Washington. Do you have beers from the fresh hop region of Washington? (laughs) All right, well, let me actually pour this so that we can get to this week's... I really would love for you to do that. If you actually said that to somebody at Beer Star, that would catch on. They would be like, somebody told us this crazy thing. They wanted beers from the Fresh Hop region of Washington. And somebody else would be like, oh, that's good. Oh, that's good stuff. Just like yeah. Don't Look Now has caught on. Don't Look Now. Only on our, on our Twitter account. Well, Don't Look Now. But congrats to Julio Rodriguez, named AL Player of the Month for August. And Reliever of the Month, Andres Munoz. <laughs> 
right after the the not a blown save, just a loss for Munoz. He got named the, AL reliever of the month like immediately after. Not technically part of August. It was already into September. I don't know yeah. why the MLB took them so long to announce the awards. Like it's one thing if you're like waiting for the next business day, but they announced these on a fucking Saturday. Like I don't know what <laughs> what's going on over there at MLB. They couldn't hold the. They boat. were waiting for Munoz to take the loss. <laughs> <laughs> they were setting up Andres Munoz, and literally, you told me that information about him being AL reliever of the month, and I was like, "Are you sure? It, of it, what month are we talking?" Look, uh, so Julio was obviously an easy choice. He hit four twenty nine, four seventy four on base, seven twenty four slugging percentage in August, seven home runs, forty five hits in twenty three games in the month of August for Julio Rodriguez, who also became. Uh, on Sunday, not in August, but in September, the first player in MLB history with back-to-back 25 homer, 25 stolen base seasons to start his career. There we go. I, I, I will say, incoming. I all of the stats about home runs and stolen bases together that people love to bring up, I just do not care. Even though they are complimentary to Julio Rodriguez, who I love. I'm just like, I, I just cannot care about these stats. I feel like they are extraordinarily cherry-picked, uh, the stats that we're talking about. And also, it's just like, okay, cool, I guess. Like, that's great. This doesn't matter in any way. It's not even like... It, cherry-picked. I, I don't know that it doesn't matter in any but way. It's, it, but Why it's, stolen bases are more important than, say, homers and walks? Exactly. That's what I'm saying. It's just like, and cool, great. But, but like the, the AL two skill player sets of the month that don't necessarily August. go together. I think I that's mean, why people like home runs and stolen the bases. The reason that, that you do that is because you're trying to show that somebody is a complete player or whatever, speed plus power. But yes. it's like, you know what? Also, just being powerful is great too. <laughs> no, it's not like Edgar Martinez was bad because he didn't steal yeah. a lot of bases. It's not like Ichiro was better than Edgar they're, Martinez they're because also of his stolen base titles. Not cher- cherry picked is not exactly, I suppose, the right word. But like, they're also dependent on Julio Rodriguez made his major league debut on opening day. Alex Rodriguez came up in July or whatever. It's not like Correct. Alex Rodriguez was a worse player to begin his career. Like, as much as you love Julio, A-Rod was a better player to begin his career than Julio in was. 1996 A-Rod was, in fact, better than 2023 Julio. But there's still a month left in the season. Who there knows? we go. I don't, I don't <laughs> think he's going to hit 356 356? or 353. Edgar no, hit 356. 356 I thought A-Rod Edgar... Hit... Did he hit 363 then? No, oh, that could be it. All right, hold on. We're gonna we're gonna need to to go into this. One, we have those bats or had those bats, yeah, uh, that incredible. commemorated this before they thought better of giving people baseball bats as they went into games. More baseball bats at the stadium. <laughs> Again, they it's, give them it's a, not going to way in. Yes. Wow. <laughs> it was just a spectacular. Maybe maybe uh, all of your grandparents and parents and every single person in the suburbs was right that Seattle was safer in the nineties. Uh, okay, let's instead do this guessing game. Highest batting averages, qualifying batting averages in Mariners history, single season. Uh, I mean, those have to be two of them. They are, they are two of them. I assume that there's an, the Ichiro 2004, I want to say, or was his 01 better? He had 372. A-Rod in 96 is second at 358. Edgar had the 356 in 95. So it's 358 and 356. Yeah, there are Both three, 96. three, 96 and 95, you said? 96 for A-Rod, 95 for Edgar. Yeah, they were okay, the, not bad. I believe led the league 
to back to back years. Ichiro then 352, 351, 350. Edgar 343 in 1992. Edgar 337 in 1999. Brett Boone, the real MVP in 2001 yeah. at 331. <laughs> and then Edgar in 1997. That's Brett Boone's name on the Pelton cast, the real MVP. <laughs> Still don't understand why he was on the scoreboard during the Husky football game on Saturday, but you know what? I enjoyed it nonetheless. Yeah. Uh, you always okay. want to see. Him. So anyway, that's what I'm saying about these stats is that it's not like this is the best of these two seasons. Again, there's stats that matter more, like WAR over your first two years, more important than home runs and stolen base combined. Remarkably, Era did not go and did not have any 25-25 seasons in his first two seasons in the major league. He only stole 15 bags in '96, and then had 23 home runs in '97 when he hit a mere 300. What was, was he what was he even doing? No, he played 100. I mean, he played 141 games. He just didn't really hit for power that much that year. Yeah. Huh. It was the lowest home run total in a full season for him in his career, basically. So. All right. Is for Munoz. He was <laughs> deserving. He had nine saves and 10 opportunities, a 1.93 ERA in the month, recording 20 strikeouts in 14 innings. Not the 202 I type out in the notes here. Uh, even though quite clearly, as we were talking about, Justin Topa had the better month of August among the Mariners relievers. I mean, the saves are obviously what they're counting. It's so funny because I feel like if obviously there are a couple of performances that Munoz had, which are just lights out. But if you were to ask me, is there one Mariner in the month of August who didn't perform far past your expectation of them? I'd be like, oh, yeah, it's Munoz. And then for him to end up being AL reliever of the month, it's just like, I mean, sure. Great. But also the stats are kind of uh, the emotional impact of some of the Munoz games were, were worse than the actual stats that he had and the consistency that Munoz had throughout the month. Yeah, there's three different things. There's like the conventional baseball stats view of Munoz's month, which is, wow, nine saves in a month by a reliever, which, you know, when you t- win 21 games, yeah, no, that's not there's a lot more opportunities. Yeah. Uh, there's his advanced stats, which were, which were good, not outstanding, but certainly very good. And then there was the emotions Mariners felt, fans felt during his appearances, which was Bobby Ayala-esque. Yes. So you you have to sort through those three different things. All right. Also this week, we are remembering Billy Shoemaker, who died last Thursday at age 80. Shoemaker made his mark in unlimited hydroplane racing as both a driver and an owner, began his unlimited racing career in 1960 at age 18, and won two ABEA Cold Cups and two national championships at the wheel of Miss Bardall before retiring after the 1976 season. Shoemaker returned to the sport as an owner in 2006, won another APBA Gold Cup in that role before selling after the 2014 se- uh, season. So certainly an important figure, both historically and then during our period of time, watching Hydro Plains as an owner and uh uh, we have a lot of fun memories of Billy Shoemaker. All right, this week we do have a listener email follow-up from the Iowa listener. Oh, Nathan hello. Holmes. Okay. It is now in our fantasy league is the Iowa listener and somehow a rival of the Nebraska listener, Jimmer. <laughs> <laughs> They're trash-talking each other. 
in the fantasy football league. Uh, just following up on how I found the podcast, I've been listening to the Dunked On podcast pretty much since the beginning, and the mock trade deadline and off seasons are some of my favorite episodes. I think Kevin might have plugged the show at some point, and I had it in my head as a great source for Seattle info. Now let's remember some years pods were some of my favorite pieces of content during the early pandemic, and you all have me more invested in Seattle sports teams than almost any other teams. Hoping to get out to Seattle in the near future and drag my fiance to all of the restaurants mentioned on the pod. Also, one random aside, Ames, Iowa, home of Iowa State and where yes. I work, used to have a Taco Time International, although I never went there. Well, good for you, Nathan, that you didn't go there. Yeah. Dunked on, huh? I'm a huge fan of um, the photo of uh, Nate Duncan and, oh my God, who's the other person's name? Danny LaRue. Danny LaRue. Being photoshopped into different places of them passing the basketball between themselves. Of, of Damon photoshopping. Of Damon doing the, that. I, the, I am the listener a Damon huge, huge fan of that. Whenever an important moment happens. Um, was the, char- was the charger man viewing them? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Boltman? Boltman view- viewing them passing the ball? <laughs> Reflectively? David came out to see us at the uh, Husky tailgate on Saturday, sporting a Talkin Taco Time t-shirt. And it was the one time you've ever been in public not wearing the Talkin Taco Time t-shirt, which was good because that would have been awkward. Is that true? You think I've never been in public not wearing it? Am I like <laughs> well, known for that? I feel like I have to, every time I think about wearing that t-shirt and you're going to be around, I know now that I can't because you would be so horrified by it. If we were to both be wearing it at the same time. Yes. Okay. So, yeah. <laughs> I also uh, appreciate the uh, the uh, fellow in Big Ten country, Iowa and Nebraska rivalry. I had no idea that that would be a, a thing that would happen when we decided to do a Seattle sports podcast. Exactly. Although it's kind of funny, I guess, in Ames, he's he's more in, uh, in Big, Big 12, 12 country. country. All right. Are we going to do the Seahawks up top here? We don't really have a lot of Seahawks talk this week because obviously... They're not playing a game? They are playing a game. (laughs) Did I screw this up again? (laughs) Later this week, we are going to preview the Seahawks in the NFL season with third Pelton brother Ben Baldwin. That will be uh, in your feeds on Wednesday evening. So be sure to check that out. And I think we can talk more about the Rams at that point because I have not done the research yet. Okay, so we're, we're just waiting on the Seahawks then for that. I mean, we'll we'll talk quickly about the the news on Monday from their return to practice after having the weekend off. Really edging people with the Seahawks information and preview. Yeah, uh, Pete Carroll ruled Jamal Adams out for the season opener last week when he was on uh, KJR FM. Uh, Seahawks did get Devin Witherspoon back to practice on Monday along with Daryl Taylor and Mike Morris. Unclear how much they did necessarily. That was more of a walkthrough. Typically during a game week, the Seahawks, you know, wouldn't really do much on a Monday. Obviously, this is a little different because you're not the day after a game. Uh, but, uh, you know, kind of a, an unorthodox schedule heading into week one. Uh, we do know the Seahawks will be without Derek Young for at least the four weeks after they placed the wide receiver on IR after he underwent hip surgery. They replaced him on the roster with offensive lineman Ben Brown who had signed to the practice squad after being waived by the Bengals at the roster cut down. That gives the Seahawks 10 offensive linemen. Well, now you said you didn't have any notes for this coming weekend, but from uh, uh, the top of your mind, tell us a little bit about Ben Brown and his game. 
Uh, he spent all of last year on IR with the Bengals. I don't know. I, I glanced at uh, third Pelton brother Mike Sean Dugar posted his uh, bio from Dane Brugler's The Beast from the 2022 draft. But I can't say I committed much of it to memory. I think John Schneider said, mentioned that he can play multiple offensive line positions. So that was a lot of the appeal, his versatility. There you go. You actually did have something to say about Ben Brown. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, do you also have one thing to say on the Rams, which is that Cooper yes. Cup visited a specialist over the weekend in Minneapolis with the hamstring injury that has been slow to. I, again, my notes were a little rough while I was watching the Florida State or the Clemson uh, Duke game with you. Slow to heal, not slow to steal. He's not going for the 30-30 club. Uh, the NFL Network's Ian Rappaport mused that it, quote, seems unlikely he will play in week one. For in Cooper Cup. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. I, I mean, this is a situation with Cooper Cup where, again, when you get these kind of random injuries that pop up, injuries that happen sort of later in training camp, there's a little bit of mystery around them, especially with a star player. For me, that raise, raises such a, a giant red flag. Of, this could be something that's going to seriously affect Cooper Cup for multiple weeks. Playing in week one is something that I think is almost out of the question. And I mean, this will definitely factor in when we're talking about our over-unders later in the week with Ben, because I do think you would look at the Rams as a team, basically any team that had been good, that had a bad season in, in your head, you're immediately like, this is a team that's due for a bounce back, right? You just Let's just cite the, the Bill Barnwell column about five teams most likely. To did he back. have the Rams as one of those teams? I don't think he did because of not the roster is Cup's so injury, drastically but, different than it yeah, was I mean, when they were good. We'll, we'll talk about this, but when we recorded and went back through over-unders at the end of the regular season, I think that was after. I, I think I had done as a bold a bonus bold prediction the Rams winning the NFC West this year under that logic. And then a lot of shit happened. And then, it, yeah, no, it makes sense. And now their defensive roster is Aaron Donald and a lot of rookies. And and when I say that the Rams were good, I mean literally the Rams were just it's slightly above average. I believe they were the sixth seed, maybe the seventh seed. Not a very good team who happened to win the Super Bowl. Let me make okay. that clear. Okay. They were they were they were a good team. Uh, really favored by Vegas. But the other the other thing that I think is funny is we we sit here on the precipice of the NFL season. I know that we're going to preview the Rams game, uh, but I was thinking about Devin Witherspoon. And there was a story about Jalen Carter this last week about like why the Eagles felt comfortable drafting Jalen Carter. And it really felt like the Eagles had been anointed because of this decision. It was like Jalen Carter, they did it right. Steal the draft. And it was hilarious to me thinking about that because Jalen Carter, I crunched the numbers has not played it down in the NFL. And already the Eagles are like taking it. Maybe the Eagles aren't doing this. People are taking a victory lap on their behalf. Because this draft pick, their culture, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And all of those things could be extraordinarily laughable in like six weeks or something. It, it could be that the Eagles season has fallen apart, that there's, you know, defense regresses to the mean pretty drastically, like sacks year over year, not that repeatable of a stat. Turnovers aren't that repeatable of a stat year after year. So it was one of those things. And then I, in my head, I was like, yeah, and I was like, ah, we drafted Devin Witherspoon. Like this just didn't work out. And I was like, no. Devin Witherspoon also has not played a down in the NFL. We were excited about Drake Woolen last year at this point. We did not think that he would be in the conversation for best young corner in the NFL by the end of the season. Like, it was like a, 
maybe Tariq Woolen would be a capable NFL starting cornerback, even wildest dreams he exceeded. But when you actually start playing the games, that's when you should judge rookies. Not after the preseason, not after the draft, not after the preseason. Once you actually start playing football games is when draft picks should start being judged. Except, of course, Jackson Smith and Jigba. No, no, no. Him at training camp. Videos in training camp with a broken hand. <laughs> Steal of the draft. And Jake Bobo, of course. Also, yes. Yes. Steal of the undraft. <laughs> anyway, that was, that was just the thing that I was thinking about as, as we sit on the precipice of the NFL season. It is You're very exciting. Very excited to say the word precipice. It's it's very exciting to talk about rookies in the week before the season starts. And then once the games actually happen, the impact that rookies have, some will rise to the top and be very, very exciting players. There were quite a few last year, right? But, some will perform above their ceiling. <laughs> yeah, above their, above their career ceiling. Uh, <laughs> I hope we have more of those types of players. <laughs> but Jake Bobo may actually already have performed <laughs> be what scouts thought his career ceiling was. That's the, the other thing is like this idea where they kept being like people who run it. What was it like a four, four nine, a four nine, four nine, nine. Be making plays like this in the NFL? And it's just like, are we joking here? Like, do you actually think that forty time and skill at a wide receiver are? that correlated also how many wide receivers well into their career are running the 40 again you're literally just judging their time when they came out of college there are successful receivers as they're older and those 40 times get a lot slower over time you know it didn't occur to me we forgot to mention off the top it's the wide receiver episode of the pelton cast numerous wide receiver episode yes well uh, steve lurgeon and jerry rice I, I don't know who else are you counting here justin That's robbins numerous. at UW. yeah justin like- robbins I mean, first off, one is a number, so actually one is numerous, but I feel like it's got to be at least three. People get so fucking caught up, though, in these, like, stats or whatever, like, 40 times, and they're like, he could could catch a pass and be slightly (laughs) slower? These two things can happen at the same time? How many tight ends run a 4-9? You know what I mean? Like, those dudes still catch passes. They just stand slightly closer to the line. They're also not... You know, they're not getting open against the same level of defenders as... In the preseason? <laughs> I, I What agree. level of defenders are we talking about right now? I agree. Are we talking about the Packers' element. third string? I mean, you know, Jake Bubba, his, his 40 may not have actually been a very good uh, measure of his speed. Uh, UCLA's pro day apparently took place during a, a downpour in Strong LA. Wins. Straight, straight, right into Jake Bobo's face. <laughs> he could; they couldn't have him run the forty the other way. But it was a downpour. It was a rainy spring. Nobody, I think nobody talks about that. It was a rainy spring. I think you're life. underestimating like how far out of context that is relative to everyone else. I don't know. Let's see, forty times for tight ends, tight ends at NFL Draft Combine. I'm sure there were like some blocking tight ends who ran in the four nine nine range. You but, think Jake uh, Bobo's slower than Will Disley? There's no way in a foot race that Will Disley beats Jake Bobo right now. I'm sorry. Again, I don't think so. I think that Will Disley may have run faster than a 499. None of the tight ends who ran it at the combine this year ran slower than that slow. The 487 was the slowest. So, I mean, 499 is like, it's not just slow. It's like, 
six standard deviations for <laughs> a fucking wide receiver. Disley also ran a four eight seven. Okay. But do you really think that tenth of a second is that big of a deal? No, I don't think it's I mean, I do think you're underselling it a little bit because like there is success, there is value in relative athletic score and you know when when third Pelton brother Zach Whitman was doing his his three sigma athlete analysis, like you can and some positions more than others, but there is an a baseline of importance of athleticism. I just don't think the forty is necessarily individually by itself a measure of it. So, did relative athletic score have Jake Bobo? I guess is the next question I should be asking here. It projected him as like a long snapper. <laughs> <laughs> they were like slow for a kicker, but we'll see. All right, here, Bobo, Bobo. Uh, Jake Bobo received a two point six one athletic <laughs> score. So it's not good, but there are other receivers and other Bobos as receivers had lower athletic scores than him. I'll put it this way. Wait, what do you mean? Literally uh, Bryce, other players named Bobo? Yeah, Bryce Bobo. I mean, I just searched for Bobo. Bryce Bobo apparently was a wide receiver at Colorado. He had a 1.52 relative <laughs> athletic score. Someone named Bobo Wilson from Florida State, 2.09. Bobo Bethard, 1.57. So it's not the well, lowest. Okay. He, yeah, he's, he's in, not the slowest Bobo even. He is, but again, slowest, yes. Least athletic is Least a athletic thing. Bobo. Philip Bobo, the uh, Wazoo re- wide receiver, is ahead of him. End-to-end speed, like, <clears throat> it is a valuable thing in the NFL, but it's probably an overrated skill in the NFL, especially without pads on. Yes. I agree that it is likely overrated. There are a lot of fast people. There are a lot of fast people. They're not all that productive. Anyway, that's our Seahawks preview, I I guess. (laughs) Again, plenty more to come on the Seahawks and the rest of the NFL with Ben later this week. Let's get to the roundup. We'll we'll ask him if a person who's as slow as Jake Bobo could even catch a ball. (laughs) Uh, Let's start with the Sounders, who played a pair of matches last week, came away with four points. It was a long-awaited victory last Wednesday in August as the Sounders took a 1-0 lead through Jordan Morris just after halftime, only to see Sebastian Drissi equalize in the 72nd minute. Looked like another draw before Albert Rushnak, in at halftime for Joao Paulo, scored the winner in the 90th minute, snapping, I believe at that point, a seven-match winless stretch for the Sounders across all competitions. On Sunday, the Sounders looked well on their way to make it two wins in the week with a two-goal lead at home against Portland in the second half. Raul Ruiz opened the scoring in the ninth minute with his first goal since June 10th. Vallejo Chu scored in the 30th minute in his return to the starting 11. But Chu received a second yellow in the 53rd minute, and Portland scored twice in a four-minute span after that to share the points. Sanders did have the better of expected goals, which they did not in Austin, but were done in by an Evander wonder strike for Portland's second goal. Sounders still temporarily back up to second in the West, but LAFC have two matches in hand. Salt Lake has one match in hand, leaving both of them ahead of the Sounders in points per match. Some of that difference will be made up this weekend as the Sounders are off. 
which does offer some hope that perhaps the next time they play, we'll be able to see Christian Roland's return uh, as he continues to ramp up his workload coming back from a concussion. Are you sure they're second in the West? There's not glitches in the computer. I I mean I can check again. I don't know that any there were any Labor Day matches that were played. That I uh, just this team doesn't seem team. like they are playing very good at soccer. They are not playing very well at soccer right now. But the, the part of it is the West is really bad. It's like the NBA Eastern Conference. Of there are six East teams ahead of them. Okay, so that's a lot of it. And LAFC, after their strong start, has come way back to the pack. They're now at 1.54 points per match, a mark that would put them sixth in the Eastern Conference. But it's good for second in the West. Rain took advantage of the earliest red card in NWSL history to snap a three-game regular season losing streak on Sunday. Orlando keeper Anna Morehouse was set off in the third minute for a denial of goal-scoring opportunity on Rain forward Bethany Balser, who had to leave the game after the challenge. The Rain broke through against a 10-player def- defense in the 49th minute when Jordan Heidema drove home a rebound of a Rose Lavelle miss. Rain were back to their first-choice lineup with Jess Fishlock and Megan Rapino starting, but Claudia Dickey remained in goal, this time kept a clean sheet. NWSL regular season breaks this weekend, or this week, for the knockout rounds of the NWSL Challenge Cup. As the number one seed in that tournament, the Rain will host Racing Louisville on Wednesday. In one semifinal, Kansas City hosts North Carolina on the other side earlier in the evening. A win would allow the Rain to host Saturday's final, which will be played at 9.30 a.m. Pacific to accommodate a national TV window on CBS. So possible to do the doubleheader of O.L. Rain if they advance in the NWSL Challenge Cup's uh, final and UW football against Tulsa later in the day. Rain and Louisville have drawn 2-2 in both of their regular season matchups, but Louisville is outside the playoff spots in seventh, albeit with an identical plus four goal differential to the Rain. U.S. Women's National Team midfielder Savannah DeMello had three goals in as many Challenge Cup games to help lead Louisville to the semifinals. The Seattle Storm cannot figure out who they should be losing to in terms of helping their draft positioning. After losing twice to Chicago in a span of a week, their next game, they beat the L.A. Sparks 72-61 on Thursday to, at that point, give Chicago the upper hand in the race for the last WNBA playoff spot. But playing without injured star Neka Ogumake, the Sparks then beat the Washington Mystics on set Sunday while Chicago lost to New York, meaning L.A. will make the playoffs by winning out or finishing with an identical record over the final three games to the Sky. Their schedule, Sky play at Indiana. So a team, another team that is in the lottery, but uh, frisky lately, got a nice win against Dallas the other day. The Minnesota Lynx will be playing for playoff positioning, and then they finish at Connecticut, and the Sun are locked into the third seed. So uh, a legitimate possibility of them resting starters in that one. Two tough games for the Sparks before they finish the season next Sunday in Seattle. They are at Connecticut and then at New York. So Connecticut, nothing to play for at this point. The Liberty still have their eyes on the number one overall seed if the Las Vegas Aces were to lose in the final week. So really big, I think, for Indiana to beat Chicago on Tuesday uh, to to help out the, the Sparks chances. They are still they are currently favored in my projections, the Sparks to get that eighth playoff seed, which okay. is what the Storm wants from a lottery perspective. Mm-hmm. But 
that doesn't take into account the possibility of Connecticut resting their starters in the season finale. This, I mean, this is tense following these two other teams that are playing. Uh, for the Storm, the only game that really matters for them is that game against the Sparks. Yes, they have a little mini road trip here, which is kind of strange at this point of the season. Both them and L.A. Uh, are on the on the East Coast this week before they come back, or in the Eastern Conference at least, before they come back to finish against each other. Uh, Storm play at Atlanta on Wednesday, at Dallas on Friday, before returning home for that last home game. And for the now, Storm, so they, these games are purely meaningless. There's something else to watch, and where this may be meaningful, is... Jewel Lloyd is eligible to sign a contract extension up until the last day of the regular season on Sunday. And the reason that she would sign a contract extension if she wanted to stay in Seattle is number one, she would lock in Supermax money. He has the ability to lock in Supermax money. But number two, she could because she could do that in free agency in 2024, January 2024, when that opens. But if she signs an extension, the storm could is is part of that uh, offer her a time off bonus using their cap space that they have open right now and allow her to make more than the maximum salary this season. We were unsure whether that was something you could legally do, but Indiana did it with Erica Wheeler uh, earlier this year. They were not as part of an extension, but they just gave her a time off bonus using their available cap space. What does that mean? So a time off bonus means the team basically pays you to not play overseas. And since Jewel Lloyd has I not see. played overseas, she would be an ideal candidate for this. And the Storm, uh, because they did not fill, have not yet filled Ivana Dojkic's roster spot, that is something else to potentially watch this last week of the season is whether they, they do add someone, you know, just to have them have their rights for next season basically would be the reason to do that. Uh, but currently they are sitting on 34,570 in cap room, according to herhoopstats.com. So not even considerable bonus that they could offer Jewel Lloyd on top of already the most money she could make. And now I talked to Jewel Lloyd, uh, I think most recently, it might've been three weeks ago now, it was definitely a couple of weeks ago, uh, for a story that ran last week on ESPN about her season and you know just kind of uh, how she trained off the court in terms of taking up pickleball is something she plays competitively and hopes to go pro in at some point. Pickleball. Has a chance to, yeah, has wow. a chance to play in nationals this year. She qualified for pickleball nationals. Uh, in a tournament last off season. So she said she hopes to play in it depending on when the USA basketball team is practicing this off season, if that conflicts. And then also working with a life coach, Sherry Riley to, uh, you know, kind of make sure her mental game is at the top of her game as well. And how that's kind of led to this season with her leading the league in scoring and all-star MVP. So I asked her about the contract extension as part of that. And she said, you know, I'm just staying in the present. That's not something I'm thinking about. What do you think the chances are that that happens before the season is over? I would be surprised by it. I think she's probably going to take this to free agency. Uh, she Why? cannot just to have that experience. The one time she extended her contract off her rookie deal. And then the last time she was in free agency, the storm used the core designation on her. So she did still have the opportunity to talk with other teams, but it wasn't quite like the full recruiting process that she could get now because of the fact that they used that core designation and she signed a two-year contract. 
She has reached the maximum number of core seasons. The Storm cannot use that core, very similar to the franchise tag, on her again. And it would be important, it, obviously, she's a good player, but as far as like roster building long term, having a player like that helps you bring in other players. I exactly. This is the situation where I do think it's important. If they lose Joel Lloyd this offseason and don't get Caitlin Clark this offseason, I understand there are other very good prospects in the draft, but still... And possibly okay. not Caitlin Clark in the draft. Now, the one thing we've talked about... Caitlin is Clark the, possibly not be in the draft. Exactly. They would have a very good shot. If, if Jewel Lloyd leaves, Caitlin Clark stays at college, they would have a very good shot at the number one slot in the lottery the next year. It, it would seem that that would likely be the direction that they would pursue. And yes, because you know what's been working against them this year is the two-year record where they have all the wins from last year when they were a championship contender. Well, those all get wiped off the board when you start looking at the 2025 draft, and they'd all of a sudden be, you know, Phoenix may finish with a worse record than them, but Phoenix does not have their own draft pick in 2025, so no incentive for Phoenix to to tank next season. There is some worst case scenario up there, though. Sure. Like if they finish with the third, I don't, I assume they're still a very good player at the third pick, but not somebody maybe a generational like Caitlin Clark. Again, all of these players are players who are going to have the option to go back. So, you know, there are, you're looking at, at, at all of next year's potential prospects. It's Caitlin Clark, it's Paige Meckers, it's Angel Reese, it's Cameron Brink. Uh, I'm probably leaving out someone who deserves to be in that group as well. But all of those players will be fourth-year players with an additional COVID year of eligibility. They also might be, if Jewel Lloyd is gone, will we know that by the time they have to make a decision about whether to be in the draft or not? Yeah, they don't have to decide until after their season's end. So, I mean, you could look at it, let's say the Storm end up with the second, third pick in the draft. You're one of those players they may all go back. Somebody's going to go into the into the WNBA, but like, I mean, I don't think you're going to be too concerned about what the roster looks like in in your first year. I think the situation you go into, you know, in terms of uh, you know ownership, practice facility, that sort of thing, you know, climate pledge arena, those elements are more important. I think yeah. than what the roster looks like right now. But but there are some bleak scenarios for the Storm where they have multiple rebuilding years. There are scenarios where next year they are they are not a likely playoff team as well. They need to make. They need to take this opportunity that they have right now, post Sue Bird, post Brianna Stewart, and end up with a probably a couple generational level players or superstar I mean, caliber players. Now, the one thing to note is compared to like when they were doing this with with uh, you know Stewie and Joel Lloyd and having the number one pick in back to back years. Obviously, you had Sue Bird on the roster, but you didn't have another young player. You know, Alicia Clark was an excellent role player, but Ezzy Megbegor is kind of a more important long-term piece than anyone who was on the Storm at that okay. point, other than Sue Bird. They also kind of just got lucky in those years, right? To get the number one pick both years? Yeah. Yeah. They, they, and, had, they had... And Jewel like, didn't have to come out. She could have not come out that year. But Stewie was already on the team. And Sue what? Bird was already on the team, right? Or was no, Jewel, Jewel first? Was, Jewel was the year before Stewie. So she huh. would have been in the Stewie draft if she had played all four years at Notre Dame. It's still Subert is Subert is a more important player to play with than anybody on the current Storm roster. Subert had won yeah. championships at that point. Yeah. 
we'll see. Well, I mean, this next week will will play a big part of that, especially the extension for Jewel Lloyd and how, how things fare between the sky and the sparks. That's going to be an interesting thing to watch. All right, returning to the rundown, Utah men's soccer. There it is. In a battle of top 10 teams, the Huskies took wow. down number three, Indiana, their Big Ten Hello. rival, one nothing Friday in Bloomington. It was the first ranked non-conference opponent UW men's soccer has beaten in the regular season since another Big Ten foe, Michigan State, in 2019. The lone goal came from freshman Charlie Kusikoff in the 77th minute as goalkeeper Sam Fowler recorded six saves in his 27th career clean sheet. So a very impressive performance uh, by UW men's soccer here. They played another future Big Ten rival on Monday, Ohio State, and drew 1-1. Okay. Not as wow. Look at all these Big Ten opponents right off the bat. The Big Ten is ours. Got the soccer, equalizer soccer in that specifically. one. Got the e- well, 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 we'll see about Michigan State in a few weeks here. Got the equalizer in that one in the 85th minute from Manny Diop. So uh, Sounders take, or Sounders, Huskies go on the road, take on two Big Ten opponents, one of them the number three team in the country, and get uh, go. Uh, do not lose and get four points from the two matches. Huskies now two one and one in non-conference play. Uh, that that loss coming at home to San Diego a week ago Sunday. Uh, they'll host Cal State Fullerton on Sunday, uh, the upcoming Sunday before beginning Pac-12 play at Stanford and at Cal the following weekend. There we go. Not in the Big Ten, so it doesn't count. I went. <laughs> to the future Big Ten soccer competitor store and asked about you, Indiana, and they've never heard of you there. Wow. Wow. Not the line from that usually gets cited. All right, let's turn our attention to UW football, which, as we talked about, opened the season in dominant fashion with a 56-19 win Saturday against Boise State. Uh, It wasn't necessarily dominant the whole time. There was a, a little nervousness in the top row in section, what are we, 136? Yeah. <laughs> Top row of section 136 was, and everywhere else in the stadium, except for the uh, uh, pockets of Boise State fans who were a little nervous for about two drives. Actually, it was the, the student one, section. One was, full quarter. There was not a lot of nervousness in the student section because there were no students there. God, you love to complain about this. There were students. It was fine. I, it's not it their fault. It was a fine it's, turnout. It, okay. School isn't in session at UW. In the South, it is. It's a different thing. There are so many students who are not on campus right now. Any student that doesn't live in Washington State, they're probably not going to be at the Boise State game. I, I agree with that, yeah. But I don't, I mean, like, yeah, so as you've talked about, it's a larger trend because, you know, it, it, school wasn't in session in the 1990s in September either, and I'm pretty sure there were a lot more more students there because of the fact that the you know, the campus was primarily made up of students from the state of Washington, which seems like the idea of a state university to me. But, you know, I, I have I no know? idea what what trends of university admissions have looked like. I have we maybe talked about it on the pod last year. We looked it up. OK, we did. And and versus in state versus out of state. Yeah. For, for students. And it's way drastically higher now. Well, it's not drastically higher, but it's it's. Substantially. But the accessibility of the university itself, like for my children, I'm like, do you want to go to UW? And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, I hope you get in, motherfucker. It ain't it ain't that easy. You know, like 
UW is not that easy of an institution to get into. I mean, I was thinking about this, and I think the sort of like real human being on the ground football fan support has way swayed to Wazoo because people are much more likely to get in there, right? Like if if you're a kid who's coming out of high school and you would want to go to a state college in Washington, the chances of you getting into UW are not that high anymore, whereas Wazoo, they are higher. And I do think that the like actual fan support on a larger scale, like UW is a much bigger institution. There are more UW fans, but I, I do think that the generation of fans is like, we're fucking ancient at this point, University of Washington fans. Yeah. So yeah. it's it's a strange thing. I think, I don't know, there has kind of been about a decade of success and it hasn't really changed anything. It's not like you look around and the fan base is that much younger. In the East End I mean, Zone, it is. Right, yeah, because, I was going to say, our section tends to see a lot of, I think, recent alumni. But beyond that, I it's still just, and maybe this is all of college football. But like, I don't think it's all of college football. I think it's college football on the West Coast. Why is that? Well, do you think colleges on the West Coast are more inaccessible? Big football colleges on the West Coast are more inaccessible than other parts of the country? I think yes, but also like the types of students, the 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 college football is just not as central to life on the West Coast as it is. Like if you go to Michigan, even if you're not from Michigan, if everybody else is going to the football game, you're just going to go to the football game because that's what everybody does. I mean, not everyone on campus, but enough people that you never have to worry about. Are they going to fill the student section? You talk about the level of competition and I'm really, I'm so skeptical about that, about how there's like certain sports dollars to go around. It probably is true when you're looking at it on the macro level, but I just can't imagine somebody being like, well, I don't pay attention to Husky football. I like the Kraken. Like that to me, those two things don't equate. But it's more I, the I, people, the, someone who moved here from, you know, to take a job at Amazon, they might jump on board on the Kraken. You're not jumping on board on UW football. Why not though? What there's the best team because in it's the, not professional sports. Like so, you think that they would with the Seahawks, but not the Huskies. College football. I'm not saying that you know college sports are strictly a product of people who went to that school because you know our college football fandom comes from our dad who did not go to the University of Washington but did grow up in a period of time when like they were the show in town. There were yes. no professional sports when he was a kid here. No, no, I mean, I know I felt about that that one year of the pilots. Yeah, that's kind of the year that I'm talking about. It was when the like UW just like fan base more than students was developed, right? Those eras, obviously the Don James era, times like that, but that's kind of like that generation's prime, right? That's their prime football going days. But I do think that there's a part of it of the upper campus thing where they kind of want it all, right? They want to say that, that the, it's as valuable of an athletic department as big, big 10 programs. And at the same time, want to have students who are from out of state and the out of state tuition and the, like the caliber of the program, the institution educationally without accepting students from in state. And it's kind of hard to have both of those things at the same time. Eventually it will come back to hurt the, the university. I mean, again, I think that, as much as everyone wants to talk about point fingers at Larry Scott and George Klivikoff to maybe to a less degree, lesser degree Klivikoff, given that he just got here. I think 
what happened to the Pac-12 is much more a function of the rule of college sports in West Coast life than it is any individual decision maker. So. I'm not 100% sure that I agree with that, though. Because as the thing that we've seen is that 10 of these institutions are valuable institutions on the open market, right? I don't know. I mean, are Stanford and Cal valuable institutions in the open market, or are they willing to take anything to stay out of the Mountain West? They, they That's part of it, but they still were, like, they're still in the ACC. You know what I mean? I don't know when, the, when it becomes a full share in the ACC. Maybe it's a very, very long time. Uh, but, I mean, I guess at the very least, four of the schools are important enough to be in the most important conference in the country, right? Or one of the two most important conferences in the country. I have Big Ten bias. We're in Big Ten country. You understand. Uh, four of them were important enough to be in the Big 12, which is a very clear demarcated number three conference or whatever. Like, this is the exact pecking order that a conference probably should have if it's 12 teams, four that are elite, four that are medium, four that are small. But, so, I, I, I don't know if... I don't know if that's exactly it. I think that USC and UCLA left and it radically changed everything. And the money would have been lower on the deal with USC and UCLA than the Big Ten or the SEC because that point about it mattering more. But I think it's more that their elite programs are just kind of slightly better elite programs. If you take the top four from the SEC and you take the top four from the Big Ten and you take the previous top four from the Pac-12, those other conferences, their top four were better. And that's where it mat- That's where the it matters more is important, but our top four kind of like right there after them. Does that make sense? I suppose so. Oh, Ohio State is, it's not like the Big Ten doesn't have the deal with Fox because of Illinois, because of Iowa, because of Nebraska. You but know we, what I mean? I mean, we talked last week on the pod about Iowa and how important college football is there. I mean, it's not. I, under, I understand that. But TV deal wise, that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about how important it is. We're talking about TV deal wise. The, the deal with Fox is for Michigan. It's for Ohio State. It's for Penn State. Maybe it's for Wisconsin. That's sure. it. They, they, there are a few programs that actually command that kind of money. And they're mostly programs that don't. And the the rest of the programs in the Big Ten happen to be lucky enough to be aligned with really fucking important programs in the same the way. The median fan avidity in the Big Ten is higher than it is in the Pac-12. I, I agree with that, but that doesn't matter to TV money. It matters a little, but it doesn't matter at the high end. It might be the difference between 50 and 40 million, but it's not the difference between a conference existing and a conference not existing. I mean, Ohio State. How important TV money to you also depends on how much money you're making from ticket sales and things of that nature. TV money matters to everybody, though. I'm not saying it doesn't matter to everyone. Obviously, you know, you're gonna try to get the most you can. But there's a there's a TV money and exposure is the most. It is it is it is God to these programs. I I mean, I think there's a reason the Big Ten didn't break up, even though, as you've mentioned repeatedly, there are levels within the Big Ten. That's what you should be saying. There's not. Fine. It's not done. No conference I mean, realignment yes. isn't finished. Over a long the enough timeline, every conference's life, you know, life expectancy goes to zero. I, we're, we just got in there and we're kicking programs out <laughs> in our heads. <laughs> Watch yourself, Jimmer. <laughs> 
but I think once the pool is big enough for everybody, like it, it matters less than when the pool starts to shrink. That's why USC and UCLA got out because they saw the pool shrinking for the big tw- for the Pac-12. Yeah. So, anyways, he's played a football game. We should maybe wait. Talk hold about on, that. I had I had one more thought. This this was something. This is not conference realignment related. This is just a heading into the season. Everybody played great. UW looks like a very good team. You might look around and see that there are a number of players on the roster who are not going to be there next year. And it's one of those things where I think this is a two-part thought that I had. Number one, in the same way that we talked about this repeatedly, repeatedly during the Russell Wilson era, we should be appreciating this moment. Because we should be appreciating this moment with Michael Penix as quarterback of the University of Washington, with Romo Dunce as wide receiver at the University of Washington, the whole lot, right? Braylon Trice, et cetera, et cetera. We should be appreciating this moment. The number two point is, I Baby Fantasy Genius was like, we're screwed next year once Michael Penix is gone. And I have to illustrate that the quarterback for the University of Washington in the 2024 season is probably not on campus right now. I and don't know. I mean, I think Dylan Morris in his like sixth year in the program, like he's probably going to be pretty good next year. We'll I think see. people are still underselling Dylan Morris because of the fact that he... He played exclusively in a John Donovan offense. But how, how about this? The quarterback for the University of Washington in the 2024 season may not be on campus right now. There are, quarter, there are quarterbacks who are going to be in the transfer portal, who are going to be, literally this season, top 10 quarterbacks around the country. That's just how it works. They're very, very, very good quarterbacks who transfer every single year, or highly touted quarterbacks who just hadn't been given an opportunity, but we know that they're still good, who transfer every single year. And what Kalen DeBoer is doing, so while we see Michael Penix being successful in this 2023 season, the thing that should be in the back of our mind is every motherfucker out there in the rest of the country is seeing this too. And that is an important thing because college football is not what it used to be. And when whatever he does with Michael Penix, seeing how he kind of came out of nowhere, good seasons at Indiana or whatever, and is now an NFL draft prospect, possibly a Heisman candidate, People are seeing that and they are noticing, and it is going to be important and helpful for the University of Washington in 2024 and beyond. So that was just a thought, a thought that I had, which was Michael Penick's success right now in front of us is so fun and so exciting, and it will pay dividends next year and the year beyond. I agree. Michael Penick's Jr. now has three games with at least 450 passing yards. Uh, he had precisely 450 on Saturday. Everyone else in the history of the University of Washington program had one. Jake Browning? No. Jake Browning never had to throw that much. His career high was 405. I believe that was in the uh, Arizona State in 2015. So I guess that was the year before. Keith Price? Nope. Topped out at 438 in the Alamo Bowl. Wouldn't be Jake Locker. <laughs> just, just have definitely not Jake Locker. Not in the top 10. <laughs> you have to complete the passes for them to count for the yards, right? Um, uh, you're missing... You're missing two quarterbacks who are in the top 10, who have thrown for at least 404 yards, which is what you takes to get in the top 10, Eason? including... No. One of them One of them you won't get. It's Kerry Conklin in 1989, okay. somehow had 428 yards. I just yards. assumed that they would all be new because they didn't pass that much in the olden days. They, they did pass during one era in particular. Uh, Cody Pickett. Cody Pickett, Pickett yeah. has... Uh, 
he also ha- or previously had four of the top 10 Penix bumped him down and now has four of the top 10 uh, Pickett through for 455 against Arizona in 2001. Wow. I mean, you could make an argument that Michael Penix is the best quarterback in the University of Washington history. It's going to be a discussion, you know, knock on wood, I hope to have at the end of this season. Uh, so I had my list. We of... can have it. You don't have to knock on wood. <laughs> we can just determine it's no if he's not. <laughs> well, I'm just saying, hopefully he's has a full it's... season to continue adding to his career stats. It's a discussion that you hope to have and you hope to think that Michael Penix is the best quarterback in University of Washington history. Correct. That's the knock on wood piece. Yes. Uh, so the dominant deep passing, obviously number one on this list. Penix's 11 completions of 20 plus yards on Saturday are tied for the most in FBS with Caleb Williams, who has two games to accomplish that thus far. And way weaker competition. I mean, that's that's the important thing at this time of year is you look at some of the scores and you look at some of the, you know, the the point differentials that happened, right? Like Oregon dropped 81. I kept looking for something impressive in the Oregon. And obviously every Oregon stat was impressive, but there wasn't anything that really stood out to me considering they scored 81 points. It was kind of just like, yeah, they scored 81 points. Everybody did pretty good. But the level of competition is the most important piece to look at. This was a Boise State team that it was it was a two-score spread. Not a yeah. small spread. And we, but we like, thought that was too high. I was talking about that with my, my editor on Friday. And we agreed that it, we thought somewhere in the 10, 10 and a half range was right. This is a team that last year was a pretty good college football team. They were eight and four. Right, like when we talked about conference, it, is a good in the regular team. season. I should say they did not win the the. We talked about how they'd be like a middle of the road Pac-12 team. So if what the Huskies just did to a middle of the road Pac-12 team was beat them fifty-six to nineteen, that is a very very and didn't. I mean, they played a good game, but like there were things that they could have cleaned up. Yep. I mean, Boise State in their opener last year played a pretty good Pac-12 team in Oregon State and lost by 17 on the road. So, yeah, this is all very encouraging. Uh, there were three receivers with at least 95 yards, led by seven catches for 132 yards and a touchdown by for Rome Odunze. Also a big day for Jalen so McMillan. Jalen McMillan's finally coming, coming into his own. Caught two touchdowns. Ran for a 19-yard touchdown in a Wildcat play. We'll be interesting to see if that'll be in the formation regularly going forward. Also, completed a pass of nine yards. Wait, did he? Was that after yeah. he left? No. I I might have been... I think I might have missed that series. That, that was early in the game. With, when the offense was struggling, Odense had the completion. Jalen so. McMillan? All right, yeah, I'm Jalen McMillan. Yes, not Odense. All right, number two, takeaways. The Huskies had a pair of interceptions, uh, one of them coming fairly late with Carson Bruner, but uh, also a Cam Fabiculanin interception. They only had more than one, forced more than one turnover in a game three times last season. The opener against Kent State, Stanford, and Colorado. And then lastly, they contained Talon Green as a rusher, which was a big fear of mine in particular coming into this game. He had four carries for 37 yards, but not a big factor, I would say, rushing the football. Yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, it, it worked out 
kind of incredible how, how this game, it's one of those situations that we talked about. We had the hype going into the game, the the number 10 ranking, which was terrifying for us. Yes. There's all, all of the just running it back aspects where we've seen it go wrong so many times. Look at May still. Just, just the Montana element was still in the back of my mind. And this, I, this, this wouldn't have been, if they'd lost the game, it couldn't, it wouldn't have all compared to Montana. Agreed. Agreed. Without question. But, the other thing, the thing we didn't specifically say is that after the first two series, it was like, oh God, they figured out Ryan Grubb's offense. Like they had a full off season to scout him. They figured out all his tendencies. And and Boise State was tremendous at shutting down almost anything at the line of scrimmage, like their attempts to throw, you know, wide receiver <laughs> screens and that sort of thing. Anything going east-west did not work out. But it turns out that to accomplish that, they brought a bunch of men into the box. And that any time a receiver beat, you know, his defender one-on-one, which he was wide open going through the secondary, yeah. which is great because Michael Penix Jr. is very good at throwing, throwing passes to those receivers. And yeah, I think you mentioned there was the one drive. The Huskies were still trailing at this point, I believe nine, uh, nine, seven, maybe. And there were like back-to-back deep balls that Penix just missed on. He missed the first one. The second one, I think it was Jalen Polk went up and did, or maybe it was, it was Jeremy Bernard who went up and just didn't catch the other one. It fell out of his hands at the goal line. Yeah. But I mean, it would have been an extremely difficult catch. When, when we had those two plays, it was like, I mean, it was McMillan, I think, who was open on the first one and Penix just missed the throw by a couple of yards. It, it definitely was like, okay, we're fine. Like, we are going to start hitting these. I thought we'd hit it a couple of times, not over and over <laughs> and over again. You might think at some point they would adjust to it. But Which the Boise State defense was not bad last year. And if it was, this it was, is... No, it was very good. It was the strength of their team. They lost a lot of starters. So Even still, you know, schematically, you'd have to assume that they'd be able to do something about it. But I do think the emergence of Jalen McMillan as, right now to me, wide receiver pecking order, he's number two clearly over Jalen Polk. I don't think there's ever any question about that. I think Jalen McMillan, if Jalen McMillan is going to play the way he played in week one, I mean, he is, he is a legit threat in a way that he's never been in his career. So to have both him and Odunze at the same time, it's sort of like, like when you you're have... underselling Jalen. He had a thousand receiving yards. He had right. more touchdowns and more okay. catches last year than Odunze, who did miss one game. So that was a factor in it. For some reason, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know what you're thinking of Jalen McMillan's doing. I mean, he had a thousand ninety-eight yards. Jalen Polk had six hundred ninety-four. Okay. Well, seeing that game that that Jalen played was Jalen McMillan played. Uh, was it was incredible. I mean, he was open on almost every play, and some of the tosses that Michael Penix had, he missed a few throws too, of balls that he was trying to squeeze in or whatever. Like Penix did not play a perfect game by any means, and I think the thing that we have to remember from last year was that sometimes the Huskies' offense was always extraordinarily good. They basically didn't have any bad games, and but sometimes it just took a while to get going. Not necessarily in the game, but even to like third, fourth down, sometimes. This was an offense that they just kind of keep coming at you, right? It's just like if you're constantly throwing these deep balls, eventually you can open it up or whatever. They get space. The the off it's a relentless offense to play against. And I think that's what happened against Boise State was the relentlessness of it. It just wore them down at some point. And then it was an onslaught. And you have to score. I mean, we talked about this last year. You have to score constantly to keep up with that Husky offense. 
And it was just shocking stand, standing there in the stands, looking at the white, you know, you look at all the wide receivers who are out there. You're like, okay, like there's Polk, there's McMillan, there's a Dunze, there's Jeremy Bernard or whatever. It looks the same. That never happens in college football where you look out and you're just like, this is the same offense as last year, almost to a T. So it, it's an exciting thing to see all of those players coming back for another year and performing at the level that they did in this game. They scored four touchdowns in the second quarter alone. And then in the second half, uh, after punting on their second drive, touchdown, touchdown, touchdown. And the last of those coming again with Dylan Morris at the controls, throwing a touchdown to Josh Cuevas, the, uh, the transfer in his first game with the team. Jack Westover also just fully, fully unleashed in Love this game. Love Jack Westover. <laughs> So the, the part of the offense that was What do you think Jack not... Westover's 40 is? <laughs> ah, it might be faster than Will Disley's. I feel like he's he might be faster than Will Disley. I think he might go 4 eight, 5 All right, what did not go well was the run game offensively. Uh, running backs with Cameron Davis out for the season combined for 62 yards on 15 carries. You take away a 21-yard Will Nixon run, 41 on the other 14. Uh, Nixon was very effective, generally 48 yards on six carries, but just 12 on seven carries for starter Dylan Johnson. Sam Adams, the second's only carry went for minus three yards. Daniel Gata had the only run, uh, other running back to get a carry. He had one in garbage time, basically. I'm, I'm unconcerned. I'm a little concerned. I, now I think one of this one of the things that was like overdetermined was when the team struggled running the ball, people would not point to the number of offensive line starters they lost from last season. And that's kind of the, the biggest change in this roster from last year. Uh, it, but instead we'll look at running back and running backs ability is a meaningful, you know, differentiator at the college level in a way that is not at his uh, statistically at the NFL level, but it's still not as important as how things are blocked. I think you also have to look at the way that Boise State seemed to scheme this game. Yeah, yeah, again, the same thing we just talked about, putting everyone in the box, yeah. So, I the only the only reason it would really matter, I mean, really to have a run game at all, but like to to have a run game that is successful against any box is if you have to become one-dimensional one and run the ball. And I mean, it matters I, late in games when you're trying to run clock. I suppose so, but it's still, it's dependent on the pass game as well. And the pass game was so effective that they didn't need the run game. And if if Boise State had all of a sudden changed their game plan, I think the Huskies might have been able to run the ball better. And those screens and plays like that might have worked better. It's one of those things where you can't be like, well, they didn't do everything perfect. That's like... They still were playing against a competent defense. If literally every single thing that you try to do is successful, then the defense isn't even trying or you're playing an extraordinarily talentless team. And that's not what Boise State is. Boise no. State had a game plan. They executed their game plan. It was a bad game plan, but they did it. And they stopped the things that they wanted. a lot of punting. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm happy I'm not a Boise State fan, but except when they play Oregon. But the... They executed the game plan that they wanted to execute. It just didn't really include stopping deep passes as much. 
And if that's that's what they chose to try to stop for the Huskies was any short intermediate stuff, there are going to be other teams that are going to scheme differently than this. And I think running will be more successful at that point. I agree. I would have been like nice to see Dylan Johnson look a little faster to the hole. There was one play in particular where there was a cutback lane available and he found it, but it took him a while and he probably would have scored if he had found it immediately. But, uh, you know, we'll see. It was also, he, you know, had limited work during training camp to some degree coming back from injury. So hopefully he will continue to improve over the course of the season. Also shout out to uh, Boise state punter, James Ferguson Reynolds, who had oh, five yeah. punts of 50 Impressive. plus yards among his seven on Saturday. The other thing that stood out on a negative sense was uh, Elijah Jackson, who earned the cornerback spot opposite Jamar Muhammad in training camp, getting picked on repeatedly. Uh, According to PFF, Boise State completed all four passes against him, along with, I believe, a pair of pass interference calls. He was also repeatedly the force defender on the perimeter on some of the big screen plays that Boise State was able to hit. There are two big plays here, a pair of 50-plus yard catches out of the backfield to uh, Ashton Jeanty. So he uh, gave way at times to Davon Banks. They rotated a lot at pretty much every position defensively, but particularly at cornerback. And Banks had four pass breakups in the game, three of them on third down. Only Carson Bruner, who came in uh, with the you know the deep reserves, was rated better on defense by PFF. I don't think the coaching staff missed that. Uh, I mean, DeBoer was Kevin DeBoer was very defensive of Elijah Jackson's performance when he was asked about it on Monday. So we'll see. I mean, obviously they've seen a lot more of him than we have, but it was. Was was not great on Saturday. Uh the Pac twelve. 13 and 0. Yes. Final season. Incredible. <laughs> I mean, granted, I don't there's not been like a lot of marquee I mean, opponents, but it's also just like Florida and Boise State. Relative yeah. to teams that other conferences played. Yeah. True. And also and, I mean and TCU. It's just avoiding any embarrassing losses in week one is an accomplishment in and of itself. These were massive victories, too. This wasn't Colorado like over TCU. Yes. Florida, Utah, Florida is just not. That was not surprising. Although Utah was doing it without Cam Rising. I suppose that that part of it was probably pretty. Surprising. I think Utah looks pretty dominant. I don't know. Maybe Florida is just straight bad. But I mean, they lost 30 to three to I just happened to see I was going through Oregon State schedule in the bowl game last year. So, Yeah. Oregon State crushed Florida 30 to 3. Yeah. Yeah. No, not great. Not great at Florida. Uh, they may not want to face any Pac 12 foes for a while. No, the Pac 12 in general looks very good. Not great news for us right now, uh, with everybody kind of peaking at the exact same time. But it's, it's early. Obviously, no conference play has happened yet. We'll just, we'll have to see. But I. It is kind of fun to have this last year of the Pac-12 be a rejuvenated rejuvenated Pac-12 in a way that it hasn't been for so, so long, where it feels like, fingers crossed, maybe the champion will be into the playoff this year. I mean, the, the downside is potentially everyone just, you know, beats up on each other. That's kind of the Pac-12 way. It'll be interesting to see, I mean... Teams probably just aren't going to move around that much after week one, other than Clemson uh, dropping from above UW in the rankings. But it'll be interesting to see where, you know, Utah relative to UW after their performance. All right, this weekend, the Huskies host Tulsa. 
which beat Arkansas Pine Bluff 42-7 on Thursday in their season opener. Coming off the bench behind starter Braylon Braxton, redshirt freshman quarterback Cardell Williams went 13-14 of for 223 yards and three touchdowns, including an 80-yarder in his college debut. Braylon Braxton and Cardell Williams are such college football names. <laughs> I know. It's like, I'm pretty sure that both of those players have been on UW before. Braylon Braxton sounded to me like an Oregon quarterback. I, I had to double check that he hadn't transferred from there. Okay. Which he had not. Uh, Braxton, uh, who is the returning starter, threw two interceptions in his four attempts before leaving the game. Yes. I haven't heard anything about uh, what their depth chart is going to look like at that position this week. That's going to be an interesting question. Uh, new head coach. For the Golden Hurricane is Kevin Wilson, the former Indiana coach who spent the last six years as offensive coordinator at Ohio State. Uh, Tulsa ranked 95th by FBI, similar to last year's Kent State team, which ranked 97th after losing their season opener 45-20 to at UW. So. Are, are they worth discussing in specific Tulsa, or, or is this just UW's playing Tulsa? we have a general sense of how this should go. I think Cardell Williams was worth discussing. I don't know about the other players. I mean, also the, you know, Arkansas Pine Bluff uh, is an FCS opponent. So this, this was not the strongest start for, uh, for Tulsa in terms of level of competition, but it gets, gets much harder in a, in a hurry for Tulsa. Their next uh, game after UW is Oklahoma. Okay. So it gets real in a hurry for Tulsa. Uh, percentage chances of victory? 95. Yeah, I'm going to say 95 to you. It would be, it would be shocking if UW lost this game. Yes. This would be Montana level shocking. All right, it is time for the hammer. And that means your favorite segment. Don't burn yourself. We got Mariners hot takes coming at you. Baseball is a long season, and a team's fate can change as quickly as the wind or the arrival of September. Things can get stagnant, and this team is in a desperate need of a shakeup. Otherwise, they'll go the way of the Ichiro's 2001 Mariners with a pathetic finish to the season. JK. No, literally. JK. That is what the doctor ordered at the beginning of the season when the hitting wasn't doing too good. Who's the doctor they told you to go see? This team is in need of a jolt of exactly what Kellenic has to offer. Cade Marlowe has fallen out of the rotation. And Mike Ford has had some nice moments, but a left field, right field DH combination of Teo, Kellenic, and Canzone, of course, is easily an unstoppable force for the stretch run. Perfect roster. And the doctor has been in session lately, absolutely demolishing AAA pitching on a rehab stint. He is focused, rested, and ready to clinch the AL West. So get him up ASAP, Jerry, because this offense is in need of about 50 cc's of pure Kellenic. <laughs> Terrific. We've come a long ways from your worry that the, the Mariners... It's been a whole week. <laughs> due to that was an injury. August problem. It's <laughs> September now. Uh, five hits and 12 at-bats entering Monday at AAA Tacoma as part of this rehab assignment. Three walks, a 533 
on base percentage, 950 OPS, even though he doesn't, does not have an extra base hit young uh, yet among that group. Yeah, I I feel the same way. Like there was once a question, and I was once a little worried. Like, what does this mean for Sam Hagerty's spot when Jared Kelnick comes back? But especially you look at one of the things that was exposed before Hagerty came back when the rosters expanded, and he the pessimist was pleasantly surprised by that one. Uh, was that the Mariners had gotten really left hand heavy with Marlowe, Ford, and Canzone in the lineup, and. Uh, you know, the, the lineups against left-handed pitchers did not look that great or your, your pinch hitting options when a lefty came into the game. So I think Kelnick for Marlowe is the logical roster move at this point. Yes. Uh, also, Hagerty had that screaming hit on Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> when almost, I think it did make it all the way to third base, I guess, eventually. There we go. There we go. <laughs> Uh, no, More K- crucially, K- had the throw to help preserve Saturday's lone victory against the Mets. Keaton Marlowe makes the most sense. On Friday night, Mariners lose to the Mets. Start of September. September starts. I'm like, wow, 21-5. and five. Can we do better? Uh, and the answer was no. Uh, so it's far. still technically it, on the table. It would take a very impressive rest <laughs> one, of September. One in three so far in September. But they get to the top of the ninth. Mets score one run to go up in the bottom of the eighth or whatever. Get to the Vogie, right? Coming back. Uh, Luca kept calling him Vogie Burgers, I think. Apparently, that's a nickname of his. I don't really remember the era. I, I <laughs> vaguely remember him being on the Mariners, but it is, it's sort of just like, like I might have dreamed it. Uh, I, I would like to, you know... I guess they played against each other this past weekend. They have been in the same room. Dan Vogelbach and Mike Ford. Yeah, they're a little different. But the Mets have like four Dan Vogelbachs also. Anyway, so the the leadoff runner gets on top of the night or yeah, top of the ninth inning uh, against the Mets on Friday. Uh, I think it was France who walked. They pinch run Caballero. And he gets picked off immediately, basically ending the game. Canzone comes up with a hit later. I am furious at this. I, in a way that I never imagined I could be angry at baseball since the year 1995. Like the, I, the, the gall to pinch run Caballero instead of Haggerty and then have him get picked off in that moment. Me and Caballero are done after that. Oh, that was wow. it. Yeah. And you didn't get the death cabbie for cutie. The fling either. is over. I'm like, what have you done for me lately? This is Sam Hagerty's job. Okay. And he should have been on there. He would have stolen second. The single would have driven him in. Honestly, they'd probably still be undefeated in September. If that had happened, (laughs) the vibes would have been so good. You can't disprove it. Yeah. It's what's the term. It's Schrodinger's. What was the the extra point that comes back to get you? Schrodinger's extra point. No, that, no, it's that's not, no, it's a uh, Chekhov's it's extra point. Chekhov's. Okay, there was Chekhov's pickoff, right? I like I don't know that it's the same way. The point was that it was a meaningless, seemingly trivial extra point okay, in the yeah, third quarter or second quarter, but we knew it was going to come back to matter. That's why it was Chekhov. Yes, a guy getting picked off in the ninth <laughs> inning of a one run <laughs> game. We know that's going to come back to matter. <laughs> What you're talking about is a scenario where the murders are both undefeated in September and what they currently are in September. That's Schrodinger's pinch runner. Yeah, Schrodinger's pinch runner. Yeah, yeah. okay, that's what I'll stick with. <laughs> but it was one of those moments where it was like, that happened, and it just, you could feel everything tilt. Some, something about 
the the Mariners, I think, act genuinely are. Things are going so well for them. They've had some hard opponents or whatever. The Mets are good. They're all on the road. The Reds are a good team. The Mets are a better team than they seem. The Mets are a dangerous team. The hitting, it's it honestly felt kind of similar to the Royals, where it was just like every uh, the Royals on the road, not in Seattle. Every ball they hit just kind of found a way to a hole. I don't know. So, Some of them found a way out of the park entirely. <laughs> I think the Reds are a little bit different, but the Mets had, you know, like the Vogelbach single that won them the game. It was just like a like slapping it through the hole. Just fouling off a bunch of pitches and then making a play. And uh, I think these have, these have all been rough losses. The Mariners have had moments in every single one of these games. I mean, even earlier today against the Reds, right? Like you get Julio at the plate two times with the bases loaded and two strikeouts. It is brutal, those two moments. You obviously can't blame Julio. He's been amazing, AL player of the month or whatever. A deserved one, not like Andres Munoz. But the first strikeout with the bases loaded, that one was especially brutal and really felt like, when that happened, I was like, this is, it's just not happening today because in August, when the Mariners have had those moments, they've gotten singles and they've gotten grand slams. Yeah. I, they mentioned on the broadcast the other day, like, you know, kind of, it was something that I had said about the Julio three run homer in Kansas city. Like you just are like, Oh yeah, I get two guys on. And then Julio hits a home run. And then the Mariners have the lead. And like those things had just kept happening. But those, those things don't happen forever, which is why you couldn't just like project forward that the Mariners were going to keep winning 80% of their games, even with Dom Canzone on the roster and continuing to hit the digger and, and make Italian hand gestures as he runs the bases. A truly incredible time to be alive. Canzone but, is still awesome. None of this is, none of this is Canzone's fault. What he did... <laughs> In Cincinnati today, and also in the Mets series, he was excellent in all these games. He's obviously he, the he only hit cleanup today. Was he cleanup? That's, he's that's what very he high in the order. I mean, I looking at his swing, I'm like, Canzo kind of just has a power swing for a smaller dude, right? But like, he he has he almost reminds me of he's not as tall as Kyle Tucker, but like it's a little bit kind of like that in a way. His swing. Yeah. I so. mean, we also saw like when Jeff McNeil homered on Sunday while choking off, it's like, you don't really need to be like monstrously large or like swing super hard. You just need to swing uppercut and hit it in the right spot. Fast hands. I mean, watching Pete Alonso, I never really watched Pete Alonso play before and how fast his hands are. I mean, you watched him in the home run derby, right? I guess they don't show his hands because they're showing the ball. It's obscene how fast Pete Alonso's hands are coming through the, coming through the zone. Uh, that was kind of shocking to me watching his swing. I was like, yeah, I just learned that Pete Alonso was a good player. <laughs> Today I learned during his weakest season in several years, right? Uh, he was so the, very good against the Mariners. He, was, he, he, he regressed hard to the mid. Uh, the Mariners hadn't lost by more than two runs since July 19th before Sunday. Then it, now it's happened back to back days. Sunday, uh, I think actually kept, yeah, they, both of these losses did keep alive the streak that I've been tracking, which is the tying run coming to the plate in the ninth inning. It's kind of shocking how often it's happened. It, the la- that last did not happen in against the Red Sox and I believe July 31st. Even down four runs with the tying run coming to the plate today. Yeah. It was, again, it's kind of kind of ridiculous. You were comparing it offline to the Seahawks streak under Pete Carroll of like one score games. Yeah. 
I mean, that's what it felt like. There was obviously that era when in the Russ era, even when the team wasn't necessarily amazing, but you would always in the back of your mind be like, we can win this game. Yeah. And I think that's what happened. I mean, the Mariners went down five, nothing against Cincinnati uh, on Labor Day. And I was like, they just need to chip away at it, chip away at it. And then they'll get the three run Homer or whatever. And that's what hasn't happened. They haven't had the breakthrough moment. Yeah, I mean, they did have it on Sunday. They did get the back-to-back homers and that one from Kansas and Mike Ford, and then they didn't build on it. Exactly. They never quite got there. Uh, But I was like, just chip away at it, chip away at it. They get Julio up with a chance to take the lead uh, with the the tying runner on first in the seventh or the eighth, and then Julio back up in the ninth as the tying runner at the plate. And, you know, obviously he strikes out on both of those. Still, I think he had a good approach in both the at-bats. But it's one of those things where you're like, I think I think I'm going to be celebrating a second here, <laughs> in a way that I again I think the Seahawks run was probably the most comparable to it, where you just never feel like you're out of a game, and I haven't felt that way about Mariners games since literally probably 1997. Last year I didn't feel that. If they got down, I was like, this game's over. Yeah, I mean, even yeah, the late 90s they just scored so many runs that they were always in it, probably. Uh, the last road series loss before this weekend against the Mets was June 23rd through June 25th at Baltimore. So farewell to that streak, which was pretty impressive. Uh, Mariners playoff odds per fan graphs down to 80%. They're still 33% to win the division. Houston, you know, just, just has kind of the stronger overall the projection. Or is Houston? No, higher? Houston is Houston is the dominant favorite. Texas, by far the lowest odds. Uh, Is that schedule related? That must be schedule related at this point also. Yeah, Houston had remaining strength of schedule, 488, Mariners 517, Texas 516. There you go. And Texas just has the weakest projection. of. And they play that series in Seattle. Probably their hardest series. Yeah. Well, Texas, they play home and road. Houston, they just play at home, right? Oh, okay. Am I remembering that correctly? Because so, it's the final 10 games of the season are against those two teams exclusively, which could be fun or could be completely terrifying. You just want it to be, you want to be in the position to be a game apart, tied. A game, I mean, uh, you want to be a million games up, but like yeah, yeah, like realistically, that. you just want to be right in, right in the thick of it as those series happen. And it's going to be a wild ride. It is going to be a wild 10 days of baseball. I can't, I, I never thought I would be this excited about it. You never thought the Mariners would be closing the podcast. On yeah, that note. Thanks for listening. Thanks. Do you want to do one more reminder about the Ben podcast? On that note, reminder everyone that uh, we'll have our 2023 traditional Seahawks preview NFL over unders with Ben Baldwin coming out later this week. Planning for that on Wednesday night. Thanks for listening. Thanks. All right.